The text for this morning is we're working through the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. These are eight statements of Jesus where he comes and says, Blessed are, blessed are the poor in heart, blessed are those who mourn, and on and on. And this morning we get to Matthew chapter 5 verse 8 and Jesus says this. He says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do you want to see God? Yeah. I don't know if you remember this infamous scene from the movie The Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was the first Indiana Jones movie. came out in the 80s when I was a kid. And the whole movie is about the Nazis trying to find the ancient Ark of the Covenant of Israel that had been lost for millennia, basically. And then Indiana Jones, obviously the good guy, trying to thwart them. And the Nazis end up getting the ark, right? And their idea behind it is that they'll have this magical power from God once they have this thing that they can unleash on the world so that they can dominate the world, right? It'd be like uh, the first ones to get the nuclear bomb are the ones that are going to win. Well, in this movie, is the first to get the ark of the covenant. If you remember, towards the end of the movie, they get to a place and Indiana Jones is tied up with his girlfriend and they're going to open up the ark of the covenant, and there's this infamous scene where they're so excited about this. And they, they open it up and it's just chaos, right? It's not what they expected to happen. In fact, what happens is they get consumed by basically, if you will, the glory of God. Now, you can quibble with Steven Spielberg's theology all that you want. That's fine with me. I'm not saying the theology is on point, but he has a point in the fact that what he's pointing out is that Oftentimes, we, we think we want to come into the presence of God. We think we want to be close to God. And yet, it's dangerous to come into the holy presence of the one true and almighty God. In fact, it might actually consume you. It might actually kill you. You may not be able to survive. We, we presume proximity to God at our own peril. Now, we find these kind of stories not just in the stories of ho that Hollywood shows us, but we also find these kind of stories in the Bible and specifically in the Old Testament. So in 2 Samuel chapter 6, there's this story about that same Ark of the Covenant, only this was the real one. And King David, who had just become king, wanted to return the Ark of God and, and bring it to Jerusalem, to its rightful place, so that the people of God would come to Jerusalem and be able to worship God in his presence with this holy box, basically, that God had given them to, to symbolize and be his presence with them. And, and, and so what they did is they, they went very efficiently, and they said, we're going to get a cart, and we're going to put some oxen on it, and then we're going to put the Ark on the cart and get it to Jerusalem as quickly and as pragmatically as possible. And if you remember the, the story, there's these people, they're dancing and they're, they're worshiping and there's people walking alongside the ark and, and the oxen stumble on the road and the ark is about to fall off of this cart and one of the men walking along, his name is Uzzah, he reaches out to stabilize the ark of God and he touches it and instantly God strikes Uzzah dead just for touching the ark. And David stops everything and reassesses his plan, which wasn't a great plan. 
God strikes him dead for simply touching something that was so holy. He wasn't even looking at God. He wasn't in God's presence. He just touched something and disobeyed God in doing that. God had given them very clear instructions. Nobody touches the ark. When you carry it, the priests carry it, and they carry it on poles so that they don't have to touch it. It reminds me of of Leviticus 10, even earlier, a story where uh, Aaron's two sons... They go into their priests and they go into the tabernacle of God and they bring strange fire, it says, before God. They they, they bring an offering that wasn't approved by God and God instantly strikes them dead. And he says to them, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. It's a dangerous thing, a serious thing to enter into the presence of a God who is a consuming fire. So I'll ask again, do you want to see God? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Earlier we we sang a song that uh, had the words in it, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory. And sometimes I think we sing words like these, and and this is, I'm I'm not hacking on the worship leaders. It's a great song. But sometimes we sing words like these, but we don't think about them. And we don't fully comprehend the gravity of the words that we're singing and what we're asking for. So what we do is we tend to treat God as if he's some sort of vending machine that can give us this spiritual experience, like he's a, maybe a cosmic Disneyland, and we're going to go to him and in his presence find the happiest place on earth. It sure sounds fun to have our eyes open and to be able to see God. Now, if you're paying attention, the words of that song are actually taken from the sixth chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. And I'm going to ask you, if you have your Bibles this morning, to turn there. Isaiah chapter 6. This is the story that Isaiah tells of when he met God, when he saw God face to face, when God called him to be a prophet to the the nation. In Isaiah chapter 6, he tells this story. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So Isaiah was a priest. He was in the temple of God, not expecting this for sure. And this was the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah, you you guys think Janet was on the mission field for a long time. King Uzziah was king for 52 years in Judah. Imagine having a king for that long. Many people would not even know anything differently. And now King Uzziah has died and everything's up in the air. Who's going to be king next? Which one of his knucklehead kids is going to rule? Is, are things going to be the same? Or are they going to be different? Well, Isaiah comes praying and offering sacrifices in the temple and God appears to him. You still have a king, Isaiah. <laughs> It's me. I saw the Lord high and lifted up on the throne. The train of his robe was so full that it filled the temple. He's the king. He goes on to say, Above him stood the seraphim. These are angels. Pure and holy servants of God, it says. Each had six wings. 
So each of these angels had six wings. It says, with two of them, they covered their face. Even the purest, holy angels who had never sinned could not be in the presence of God and look on him. They had to cover their face with their wings. They were creatures. They covered their creaturely feet with two more wings. And then with two wings, it says, they flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. I mean, the experience sounds incredible. And we sing a song. We say, God, we want, we want to have that vision. We want to see you high and lifted up. We want to see you as king exalted in the temple. But I ask you, what was Isaiah feeling at the moment? What was he thinking? What was going through his mind? What would it have been like to be in Isaiah's shoes? Well, thankfully, Isaiah tells us. And in verse 5, he says this. He says, I said, woe is me, for I am lost. You may have a Bible version that says, woe is me, for I am undone. So what Isaiah does here is he actually calls a prophetic curse down on his own head. Woe is me. Like, woe unto you. Woe unto me, for I am undone. I am coming apart at the seams. I am broken. I am falling apart. I am finished. He sees God in his unmatched glory, in his threefold holiness. These, these angels are singing holy, holy, holy. Not just holy. Not just holy, holy, but holy, holy, holy. God is not just holy or the holier one. or the, He is the holiest one. He is holiness in its purity and its fullness. And Isaiah has set eyes on him. He calls a curse down on himself and says, I'm finished. I'm undone. I'm falling apart at the seams because I've seen God. Now, Isaiah was probably one of the most godly most obedient, holiest men in all of Israel. And he calls down a curse on himself. And this points out really what is going on here. Now, God had already told Moses back in Exodus that no man shall see my face and live. Isaiah makes it clear why that is the case. He says in the last part of verse 5, For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Even the best of us is a sinner. We're all sinners. We've all committed treason against our Creator. We're corrupt in every part of our beings, our minds, our thoughts, our words, our eyes, our hearts, our wills, our desires, our emotions, our bodies. Every single piece of us is touched by sin. And because sin cannot remain in God's presence, it must be done away with. It must be destroyed. It must be judged. And when someone comes into the holy presence of God, when you truly understand God's holiness, you will be undone. And if you're not, if you've never been, I would say you've never known or understood or experienced the holiness of God. 
When Isaiah sees God in his utter holiness and his power and his glory, his first reaction is to call down a curse, a judgment on his own sinfulness. He does not seem to find this experience of seeing God a very pleasant place to be, a very pleasant thing to go through. So I'll ask you again, do you still want to see God? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now in saying this, um, Jesus was most likely, and in fact he was very probably, quoting from Psalm chapter 24, which Luis read for us earlier. Psalm 24 says this in verse 3, Who will ascend the hill of the Lord? Who, who's going to go up to where God is? Who shall stand in his holy place? Will Isaiah? Will you? Will I? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. The point here is clear, and Jesus' point is clear. It's the only the sinful soul, or excuse me, the sinless soul who will stand before God. It's only those who are, whose hearts are pure who can see God and face him without fear of judgment or destruction. To be in God's presence, purity is required. So when we sing the words, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, I want to see you, what we are really praying, what we are really saying, what should be going on in our, on in our hearts is God, make me pure. God, make me holy. Make me someone who can stand in your presence. But if we're honest, that's not usually what we're thinking or feeling when we sing this song or others like it. We're praying for an experience. We're praying for a, for a spiritual high. We're praying for a feeling that God would be present with us and that we would know his presence. Come on. We are consumers. We are Americans we want the best product and the quickest fix right now. We want the end result. We want the blessing without the work or the pain that goes with it. So like St. Augustine 1,600 years ago famously prayed, God, make me chaste. In other words, make me pure. Make me holy, but not yet. That was his prayer. Make me holy, but not yet. Wait, I want to experience all the things I want to experience first. I want to do all the things in life that are fun before you make me holy, God. So the truth is stark. If we want to see God, the price is high. The price is purity. And again, if we're honest with ourselves, it's not a price that we're able to pay, and it's sometimes not even a price that we're willing to pay. The prophet Isaiah couldn't even pay the price of purity no matter how hard he tried. But thankfully for Isaiah, and probably quite surprising to him as well, the story doesn't end with him disintegrating into ashes or being destroyed in God's presence. It actually proceeds with the grace of God towards him in the work of atonement. So verse 6 says this. Then one of the seraphim, one of those flying angels with six wings, Flew to me, it says, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. 
And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, think about that moment for just a second. Somebody takes a hot coal out of the barbecue over there and sticks it on your lips. How's that going to feel? Painful. So you can imagine this really happening to Isaiah, the blisters that would pop out, the disfigurement that would come in his face, the pain, the searing hot pain that he would have to experience this. I wonder if Isaiah had a scar on his face the rest of his life because of this experience. But Isaiah's sin in that moment is atoned for. Now, atonement is a big kind of fancy theological word that I can probably best explain in this way. Atonement is having relationship restored by getting rid of the thing that stands between two people. So if two people have something between them, animosity or a hurt or sin, removing that and bringing the people back into relationship, that is atonement. Atonement gets rid of what has caused division in a relationship so that two parties can be at peace. And atonement is usually done at a price. Something has to be paid for atonement to be made. And what God does in atoning for sin is that he wipes away guilt. He takes away sin. And an apt metaphor for atonement is wiping clean the face of the sinner. If you've ever had a toddler who ate food, you know what it means to wipe someone's face clean, right? They just are covered with, with food on their face, and you take the little wipe, you hold the back of their head, and you just go to town. And some of them fight, and some of them are just great with it. Very few are just great with it. But you get that idea of wiping our face clean. That's what God does with us in atonement. He wipes our face clean so that we can look on God. And God changes the look on his face from, from a frown of judgment to a smile of blessing. And it's like we can look upon God now because atonement has been made. You remember the priestly blessing from the Old Testament? May the Lord's face shine upon you. This is a prayer for atonement. That God would look on us with a, with a smiling face and that our face would be clean before him rather than him looking at us with judgment. So for the face of a man or woman to look upon the face of God, atonement must be made for our sin. There's no other way to be pure in heart. And the Bible's clear that the only way to experience this atonement, this removal of sin, this removal of sin's consequences is through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Purity of heart becomes reality for us when by grace alone we put our faith alone in Christ Jesus alone. He is the only one who ever lived a perfectly pure life, the only one who could stand in, in God his Father's presence without sin or without destruction or without worry, without guilt, without shame. He lived that perfect life for us and in his death he paid for our sins to be atoned for. When we put our faith in Jesus, those sins are removed. And we can come into God's presence. Now, but even for those of us who would say, I'm a follower of Jesus, I put my faith in Christ, most of us wouldn't say that we're as pure in heart as we should be, or we ought to be, or we want to be. We continue to wrestle with sin. We continue to wrestle with its effects. And so we too must pursue a purity of heart by pursuing lives of obedience 
to Jesus. So the passage that Dallas read earlier from 1 John chapter 3, you could turn there if you'd like. 1 John chapter 3, the first three verses, this is what John says. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. That's what Jesus does for us in the atonement. When he, when he makes us right with God, we're not just forgiven, we're made children, we're adopted. We're God's sons and daughters. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because what? We shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So John points out here that those who put their faith in Jesus are children of God. Right now, we have this identity. We have a fresh start. We have a clean record. We have acceptance from the God of the universe. But one day, John says, one day you'll get something else. Your children now, you will be children forever. But one day, not only will you be children, but, but, but you will be like him. And what will be hasn't yet appeared. It's not yet complete. We're a work in progress. But when he appears, we shall be like him. Who shall we be like? We shall be like Jesus. Why? Because, John says, we will see him as he is. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And according to John, the very seeing of God will make us like God. Seeing God, looking at him will make us pure in heart. For everyone who thus hopes in himself purifies himself as he is pure. Here's, here's another passage from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He says, And we all, beholding the glory of the Lord, looking upon the glory of the Lord of Jesus, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So the more we look on Jesus, the more we see him, the more we spend time with him, the more like him we will become from one degree of glory to another. So beholding and becoming are tied together. And the more like Jesus we become, the more we will look at him. And the more we look at him, the more we will become like him. And the more we become like him, the more we will want to look at him. And the more we look at him, the more we will want to become like him. You see what's happening here? This is what Jesus is doing to us. But how do we, how do, we do that? How do we look at Jesus? Well, we look at him in his word. We look at Jesus as we pray, as we read the Bible, as we listen to it preach, as we see him in it. We look to and become like Jesus when we obey him. And when we look at the face of Jesus, we become the kind of pure in heart people who will be able to see God. So if we truly want to see God, we must turn to Jesus. He is our purity of heart. And as we pursue him, we pursue purity of heart. But on the other hand, if we're just not interested in Jesus, if we're not interested in seeing God, if, God, if Jesus doesn't hold our attention like all the other interesting things in our lives that tend to take our attention, then purity of heart will not interest us at all. It'll be an afterthought. It'll be a 
kind of a wish dream. We won't give our energy and attention to it at all. So let me sum up where I've been and what I've said so far this morning in this way. God has made us to see him, to look upon him, to be in relationship with him. This is the greatest possible human good. But our sin keeps us from that. And the only way relationship can be restored with God is through the atoning work of Jesus. And as we live lives of faith in Christ, he constantly leads us to repentance because we're constantly getting off track, going after all these other things that are interesting and exciting to us and turning our backs on God and not looking at him at all. We are distracted away from God. And he calls us to turn away from those things and repent and turn back to him. And so as we do, as we do that, we become people who are pure in heart, who as Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, will one thing. To be pure in heart is to will one thing, he said. And what will we will? What will we want? What will we desire if we are pure in heart? We will want to see God. We want to see our greatest good, our greatest joy. So let me, uh, let me allow, or allow me, if you will, just to leave, leave you with two points before we finish this morning. The first point is this, that to be pure in heart, some of us need to repent. Those who are not pure in heart do not see God because they do not recognize him as God. In fact, many of us are not even looking for him. Some of you don't want to see God. You can't see him because you're turned the other direction. You can't see something you're not looking at. Too many other things have clouded your vision. Too many other things hold your attention and have grasped onto your heart. These are things that you desire more than God. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your hobby. Maybe it's toys. Maybe it's money, maybe it's friends, maybe it's all your stuff, maybe it's some kind of addiction. Whatever those things are, your eyes are distracted by the world and eyes that are distracted by the world cannot see God. And in order for you to take your eyes off of these things and turn them to Jesus, you must repent. You must turn. So to be pure in heart, some of us need to repent. Secondly, to be pure in heart, some of us need to understand our identity. Some of us need to understand simply who we are. Some of us, some of you feel so burdened by guilt or shame that even as much as you would like to see God, you can't even bring your face up to look him in the face. You're certain that if you saw God's face, it would be covered with a judgmental frown. You can only imagine his displeasure. You can't even imagine his, his love for you. And for some of you, you've never put your faith in Christ to experience the forgiveness and the new life that he offers. And for you, perhaps, this is the day of salvation. Perhaps this is the day that you would place your faith in a Savior who can get rid of your sin and make you right with God once again. For perhaps today is the day for you to trust God, trust Christ and Him alone, and you will find in Him a God who loves you, a God who forgives you, and a God who will stay with you forever. Is that the thing that you need to do? Turn to Christ and find your identity in Him today. Others of you, 
You're a child of God through faith in Christ, and yet you still don't feel like he looks at you with his pleasure. And I want to just say this to you and, and call you to believe it by faith that no matter what you feel or think, God is as pleased with you as he is with Jesus Christ. He's, a ple- he's as pleased with you, his adopted son or daughter, as he is with his only begotten son, over whom he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He looks on you as his child and says, you are my beloved child, in you I am well pleased. And if you can't hear that this morning, you've got to grasp onto it with faith. His face is shining and smiling on you, not because of anything you have done, but because of everything that Christ has done. He says of you, with you, I am well pleased. And our task is simply to believe that. And our task is to live out of that identity with lives of obedience. Let's pray. Father, this morning we're here in the park. It's distracting. It's beautiful. It's a little bit loud, but it's wonderful to be in your creation. And God, our stomachs are hungry. We're ready for food. We're ready to eat. We're ready to enjoy fellowship together. And Lord, I pray that those things even would point us to you. God, they would point us to the hunger and thirst that you desire to have us for you, to see you. And God, we don't come into your presence this morning flippantly. We don't come to worship and sing just lightly, but we take it seriously that we come into the presence of the one who's the consuming fire. God, we come into the presence of the one we can't even see or, 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 or be in the presence of without holiness and without purity. And Jesus, we thank you for giving us your purity, for covering us with your righteousness, for making atonement so that we could be with you. Father, if there's anybody here today who does not know you, who has not put their faith in you, who is not assured of the forgiveness and the adoption that we have in you, God, then I pray that you would draw them to yourself today, that you would draw them in faith and repentance and joy and peace today through your gospel. Do that work, we pray. Father, take these meager and feeble words and work them into our hearts and lives today. We pray this in your name. Amen.